All right, thank you, Pastor Yeomans, and uh, thank you for your friendship. Really appreciate it. Yes, we did get lost in Jerusalem. We were actually hunting for terrorists. That's what we were doing. <laughs> you don't know this. He's a CIA agent, and I am... Yeah, sorry. Do we have spies in Canada? I don't know. I, I, I don't qualify. Whatever. I'm Swedish Secret Services. There you go. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And thank you, Pastor Yeomans, for your friendship and over the years as well, and for the invitation to be here and your kindness to our family. These... Uh, past several days, and to the church family as well. Thank you for spoiling us. I am about to break into the Swedish berries this afternoon that were in my bag, so for ethnic reasons and also for sugar reasons, but I uh, really appreciate your kindness to us and the fellowship, and we've had a great time. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, and yes, happy anniversary. I mean, the first time I was here at Bible Baptist, I think I was 19 years old. I got on a bus and you had Dr. Johnny Pope preaching here. And we came, and all I remember is there was a young lady in the second row who kept rearranging her hair the entire service. And the preacher stopped and said, young lady, would you pick your hairstyle and stick with it? So that was my first exposition to, uh, to Bible Baptist Church. And you think I am kidding, I am not. And, uh, but it was, uh, it was memorable, it was memorable. I, I think there was a message preached that night too. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter number 2, let's begin reading in verse number 1 and go down to verse number 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Are you glad he was crucified for us? Because he did something that we could never do. He, he, gave, he paid the sacrifice for our salvation. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful church, the people that you've gathered together and formed this body of believers. Thank you for their leadership. Thank you for Pastor Yeomans and his family and, and uh, the Hollands and the Terrells and others have labored here over the years and other faithful people that it would take long to mention all the names of those who pour and have poured their lives into these, this ministry these past several years and even today. Thank you for the music that has uplifted us. Thank you for the message, scriptural message in those songs. Now we Holy Spirit to speak to each of us through it. You gave it to us by inspiration to teach us not only how to live, but how to have everlasting life. But having everlasting life also to have a significant and impactful and satisfying and meaningful life here on this earth. So whatever the needs of each family of each person are, we're trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to meet those needs through your word today. Amen. The world as we know it is not getting better. The north side of Montreal, uh, I'm starting to know some of the police detectives on a first name basis. Hey Eric, can I use your security cameras? Yep, you know where they are. And I mean, it's just, I mean, we had a roofing done the other day and at the church and the contractors came and says, hey uh, sir, did you know there's a drug deal going on right behind your building? I said, oh again. Broke out right in front of the church on the street a few Wednesday nights ago. We had to lock the church door and just let, are you a violent man? No, okay, you come into the service. It, it, it was, I mean, it's a, it, the world is not getting better. Not just on that front, but Probably many of us could 
just think back in our own families, in our own relatives, store sad stories, things that should never have been done, things that should never have happened. Perhaps you're a parent and you have children, and perhaps this thought has crossed your mind. What kind of world am I raising my child in? What kind of country? Perhaps you, you're elderly, perhaps you're retired and you're a grandparent, and you're not really recognizing the country that you loved. It's changing. And we would say that in many ways it's not changing for the better. But you know, we can still reach forward. We can still reach people for Christ today. And it's a bit cliche. Every forward motion in the spiritual realm is always going to be resisted. There will always be spiritual resistance to anything good that is attempted, that we try to do. External resistance. People are going to reject what we say. People are going to reject the principles that are taught from Scripture. And it would appear that every season a new variant comes out. And I'm not talking about viruses, I'm talking about sin. A new variant of sin comes on the scene, and we're like, wow, I had never thought that this would be a thing. I would never have thought people would promote that. I never thought people would be teaching or doing that. But not only external resistance, there's inside of my heart. God wants to change my life to become more and more and more like their flesh just doesn't want it. It doesn't want to change. No, I like this, or I've been enjoying this, or this is how I am. And this, there's this internal resistance sometimes. And sometimes, if you're a Christian, you can just want to say, you know what, I'm done. Uh, it's so bad that I don't know what can be done. It's so difficult that I don't really know if there's hope anymore. Well, Jesus talked about that, about that in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. Jesus said, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Until Jesus comes, we ought to keep our hand to the plow and reach out to people. As we talked about Thursday night, people who sometimes are not good to us, we're good to them. We try to make an impact in their life. And no matter how people are, how the world gets, we keep our hand to the plow and we continue to work for the Lord. Paul here in our text comes to the city of Corinth. Corinth, even outside of Bible talk, Corinth was a bad place. It was terrible. I mean, I live in Montreal. Montreal has a reputation, not a good reputation, and it is entirely justified. All right, with me, you're allowed to make fun of it. Okay, I never live where you live. I'm like, well, thanks a lot. You know, I, I hope you're praying for me. I, I don't know. But the idea is, even though it's a wicked place, you know why it's so wicked? Because people are desperate. They need something. And they go into the gutter hoping to find food. And they go, not, not physically, I'm talking spiritually. They, they, they're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. If this particular brand of perversion doesn't give them happiness, they go find something worse or something more intense. And if once they're high on this thing and it stops working, they get high on something stronger. This is how the world works. And the darkness is really thick. But Paul comes to Corinth and he's, I mean, I won't even in a mixed crowd this morning with children present. I'm not going to elaborate on the things that were going on in Corinth. Let's just pick the word wicked. It was a wicked, wicked, wicked place. And put yourself in the, in the Apostle Paul's shoes. He shows up at Corinth, and he, I mean, his first day there, he's probably looking over here and seeing something carrying on that he's like, I can't even look. That is wicked. And then he's walking through the city, perhaps my, like most big cities, they probably had a, one of the neighborhoods that was like set apart for wickedness. And he just sees that, and he, he's like, oh, I can't believe people do that. I can't believe people believe that or do these things. 
But notice what Paul had, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, a single message. It's easy to get sidetracked when we see wickedness. If you're like me, perhaps you see something and you know you have to speak up. But sometimes we speak up about it so much we stop talking about Jesus. You know, when I go to the doctor, if he says to, to me, uh, Mr. Levier, you are very ill. Okay, right, right, good, thanks for letting me know. Now what? I don't know. Have a good day. I wouldn't be very happy. Just you tell me I'm sick and you don't propose a treatment. I mean, make believe. Tell me that, you know, cracking my knuckles is going to heal it. I don't care, whatever. Tell me something. But oftentimes we're content with just saying, well, the world is bad. What can we do? Well, we can't do anything, but Jesus can. And if all we're doing is highlighting how bad it is and how wicked it is, we're right. It is true. But look, it says, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul had a single message. Now, that message can be applied in different ways, but he was there to talk about Jesus. He had a single message. When you die, you'll have been known for one thing. I hate to break it to you, but you're going to be remembered for one thing. You'll have done many things. You'll maybe have worked several jobs in your life, but when people are talking about you at your funeral, sorry for being morbid, I know it's anniversary Sunday, but... People will say one thing, oh, he was a funny guy, he was hilarious, that, that's your reputation. Oh, he was so caring, or he was so chronically late to everything, you know. Oh, he owned a boat that was valued at $24,357, you know, that's your reputation, and they're all going to be vying for the boat, sorry to tell you, but you'll be remembered for one thing. Okay, let, let's play, let, let's try this. If I say the name Elon Musk, say the one word that comes to your mind, Elon Musk brings, makes you think of Tesla or Twitter, depending, yeah, right, okay? Now, none of you said SpaceX. Not one, I didn't see a single lip say SpaceX. He's the president of SpaceX. How many of you said the boring company, you know, boring tunnels? That's Elon Musk too, but he's known for one thing. He's known for Tesla. If I say Michael Jordan, you're thinking... He played baseball, you know that, right? He did play baseball, not well. He dropped a few balls, but he played baseball. If I say, okay, for those of you who are super spiritual, if I say C.T. Studd, yeah, exactly who, right? Missionary, he was a missionary. Okay, now, if you, now go home and C.T. Studd, read the biography. C.T. Studd, but he was also a professional cricket player. Not a lot of people know that. He gave it all up to become a missionary. Or if I was to say, okay, for those of you who are well-versed in the songs, you know, that we've been singing as Christians for a long time, if I say the name Horatio Spafford, most of you will say, it is well with my soul, but we don't often talk about how his life ended. He was in Jerusalem in a very strange that group, like a, they, they thought some really strange stuff. We don't talk about that. We just talk about that wonderful song that's been a comfort for so many people. At the end of your life, you're going to be known for one thing. And to be honest, my church and my community is probably going to be known for one thing, either for loving people or for some political stand that we're taking that makes the news. We'll be known for one thing. But notice what Paul says in verse number two, for I determined. I made a decision. 
This is what I'm going to be known for. I am going to be known for Jesus crucified. I'm not going to be that guy who's walking around Corinth railing about that particular sin. Now, did Paul address that sin? Oh, yeah, he did. I mean, read the rest of 1 Corinthians. He talks about a lot of sins. But he determined, I'm going to be known for one thing, and that's Jesus. Let me talk to the parents for a moment. Your kids, they can probably summarize you in one word if they want to. What is that word? It's going to, I want, I don't know, for me, I would like it to be, well, my dad was a Christian. My dad was like Jesus. I, I would like, I mean, I have work to do by God's grace to get to that point, but I want to be known for one thing. As Christians, we can easily get knocked off balance. We get so, so passionate about some government policy that we don't like, and we talk about it to anybody, and we, that's all we talk about. But at the end of the day, Jesus did not leave us here to make a political difference. He, led, he put us here to, to preach Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we have to take a stand and say this is wrong and we're against that because the Bible is. Or we're for this because the Bible is. But at the end of the day, why are we here? I determined, I made a choice, I made a decision not to know anything among you save one thing, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He made a choice. What do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? You get to choose, do you know that? You get to pick. You get to make that decision. You want to be known for one thing. And if you're a Christian, that ought to be, I want to be known for preaching Jesus. Not just preaching him. I want to be known. When people know me, that lady or that man, they're like Jesus. They react like Jesus. They love like Jesus. They're just different, and that's what I want to be known for. If we're going to reach forward, well, we definitely want to be known for that. You know, sometimes we're so distracted on this side and that. When I was teaching my boys to ride a bike, you know, both of them did the same thing. They would look around, and oftentimes they would hit parked vehicles. You know, I, I, I don't know. Sometimes you'd be like, oh, there's no scratch. Crash. And as Christians, sometimes we take our eyes off of Jesus and we're looking at politics, and we're looking at wickedness, and we're talking about this, and we're talking about that, and we cease to focus on what's really important. What's really important is Jesus. Are those things not important? No, I didn't say that. I said they're not the most important. And we need to keep our eyes on what's most important and apply it to these other things. More than ever, we need to have a single message. How many of you have been on Instagram over the weekend or on TikTok or any other thing? Okay, as soon as I said TikTok, all the hands went back down. I'm not sure why. Or on whatever social media. You can't even remember everything you read. You can't even remember everything you saw. There's too many different messages and you can't remember them. However, if you're gonna be effective at that, you want to have one message. But now let's transport that to your life. You know, ultimately, you ought to be known for one thing. When you have a family gathering, when you're talking to people, try to do one thing. Try to make a decision that every day when I go to work, every time we get together as a family, I want people to walk away thinking, you know what, that person helped me to get close to Jesus. Doesn't mean you can't discuss something that happened in town or something in the news. Of course, we can discuss it, but don't discuss it in, instead of Jesus, okay? Don't discuss it in replacement of Jesus. Just one message. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus is the only way of salvation, by the way. 
I don't know if you're here today, and I, I, I don't know who's a member of the church, who's a first-time visitor, I don't know. But let me tell you one thing. There's only one way to have hope in life, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus loves you so much that he did everything necessary for you to spend eternity in heaven with him. While we've been here, we've been staying with my mother-in-law, who lives over on Sunset Drive. Now, she lives in a building on you know, the fifth floor. I won't tell you the apartment number because I don't want her to get robbed, okay? But, you know, when you get into her building, we have a little thing. There's a screen. You find her last name. You press it. Then it rings her phone. She presses a number, and it lets me in. Now, what would you think of her if she says, hey, you guys are coming to St. Thomas? You can stay at my house, but I'm not letting you in. Bring your ladder, bring your ladder, and then we take out our ladder and try to put it up against, I think that's her apartment over there, and we lean it up, and then we're climbing up and knocking on her patio door, hoping she lets us in. No, the fact that she invites us means she's going to let us in, okay? So the very fact that she invites us, every time we've buzzed, she's always let us in. She doesn't say, well... You know, if you find that if you can throw stones at the right, maybe I might look at you or bring your ladder or, you know, I'll leave a rope dangling 10 feet off the ground. If you jump high enough, if you're good enough at dunking basketballs, maybe you'll reach that rope. No, she, she lets us in. Now, what do you think of Jesus if Jesus says, hey, I love you, and I want you to spend eternity with me if you can make it? <laughs> that, you know, that's not the kind of God we serve. You know, most religions, that's what they do. Oh... If you can go to church enough, Jesus will say, okay, fine, you reach the rope, come in. Jesus isn't that way. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, you know, if you can have a tall enough ladder to get to heaven, if you can do enough good stuff, I'll let you into my heaven. That's not how he is. He loves you. Because he loves you, he invites you. He says, the man, no man, the man that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He wants you in heaven. Do you know what he did in order for you to be able to go? He buzzed you right in. He did that when he died on the cross to pay for all your sins. He knew you couldn't get in on your own, so he came down here and he did everything. Sometimes when her hands are full, you know what my mother-in-law will do? She knows we're coming. She'll leave her apartment, she'll come down, and she'll help us carry our luggage in because she knows she doesn't want us to make two trips because she wants us to come in. Jesus came to this earth and he helped. He did everything you had that was necessary for you to go and spend eternity with him. He's not saying, well, if you're good enough, we'll see you up there. No, 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 no. He came here. He knew that you're a sinner. He knew that you've done, thought, and said things that are wrong. And he says, but I want you in my heaven. I want you to spend eternity with me. And bzz, he buzzes you in. How did he do that? By dying for you. You don't have to try to reach heaven. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to give money. You don't have to do a bunch of good things to offset the bad things you do. You just have to accept what the Bible says is his free gift of salvation. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. My mother-in-law said, hey, you can, spend, you can stay at my house while you're here. And then if, as we exit later today, she says, <coughs> here's the invoice. Is that a gift? <laughs> no, not really. By then, I'd say, well, at that price, I would have stood at the best Western, you know. <laughs> Point is, a gift is free. If Jesus is making you earn it, he's not letting you into his heaven. He is not giving you a gift. He's selling you heaven, and that's not what he did. He paid for it by his blood. If there's any doubt in your mind that you're on your way to heaven, 
Would you do me a personal favor, see Pastor Yeomans or see Pastor Holland or Pastor Levi or anyone from this church or myself and uh, someone, and we are going to show you how today you can be saved, how today you can go home for lunch knowing that you're on your way to heaven because he, want, he is the only way of salvation according to the Bible. But as Christians, we have to have one message. Yeah, applied to different situations, applied to different sins, but we have one message. But don't notice in verses 3 and 4 that we have a single confidence. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul had not just a single message, which was Christ. He had a single confidence, which was the Holy Spirit. One of the big themes in 1 Corinthians is that Paul can't do it by himself. He does not have the ability to do what God wants him to do in and of himself. Now, this church is an independent Baptist church. What that means is that there's not some head office somewhere that's telling Bible Baptist what to do. The members of Bible Baptist Church will vote on things and make decisions as a church body. There's nothing imposed from the outside. That's what we mean by independent Baptists. But sometimes we might take that a bit too far because we're to be dependent Baptists. We are dependent on him. He's the one who, makes, who helps me to be the dad that my boys need me to be. He is the one who makes me able, by his power, not mine, to be the husband that my wife needs me to be. Now, God can use a lot of things, but we can only depend on him. Paul comes here. Now, Paul has a doctorate, basically, in modern terms. The guy is educated, educated, educated. When he was in his 30s, when he was a young man, he was already way ahead of anyone else, you know, in, of his peers. He was a super smart guy. But he comes to Corinth and his hands are shaking. He says, I was trembling. I, I, was un I, I knew that I was weak. I, I came in fear, much trembling. Because the Corinthians were used to good speakers. They had a thing similar to the Olympic Games there. It was called the Ithmian Games. So every four years, you'd have the Olympics. And on the second year, in between every Olympics, you'd have the Isthmus Games or the Isthmian Games in Corinth. Now, it was a lot of sports, but then they added public speaking. Now, the Greeks were really good at that. So you'd have these guys who were the best speakers in the Roman Empire come and they would, all the Corinthians would get into this big stadium and they would hear these amazing speakers tell stories and they would do all these things and here comes Paul. And Paul's like, oh boy, these people are used to good speakers. These people are used to being moved and having a speaker have them right in the palm of their hand. What am I going to do? I'm just some guy from, from I, I, I'm not even from here. I mean, Hebrew is my mother tongue. What am I going to do? And he says, I was kind of nervous about it. But then he remembered something. It's not up to me. I might be fearful, but God is able to do it. Do you ever get scared? I'm going back to the parent thing, that you won't be able to raise your kids like you ought to. Perhaps you're a single mom or a single dad. And to be honest, you don't feel like you have a lot of support. And you're honestly, you're just doing the best you can. And you're like, I just feel like my best isn't good enough. Can I encourage you that God knows that? And God cares. And God says, you know what? You might not be able to, but I can show my spirit through you. I can do things through you 
that you would never be able to do, even if you had all the abilities and all the money and all the resources. He says here, my speech was not my enticing words of man's wisdom. It wasn't me. There's better people out there than me, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You can apply this how you want. It's all going to be valid at your job, in your marriage, in your home, in your witness for Christ, all of it. You can have an impact that's way bigger than what you can do if you'll just depend on the Lord. What does that look like? Well, it looks like getting saved, really. The day that you get saved, you, you don't, the words don't matter. It's not the words that matter, but the general spirit of, is this. I can't save myself. I'm not able to save myself from my sins. Only Jesus can save me. So I'm not depending on myself. I'm depending only on Jesus. So what does it look like in the Christian life? I can't be the husband I need to be. I can't be the father I need to be. I can't be, I'm not, I just can't. I am not able. So Lord, I'm going to stop depending on me. And Lord, you have to come through. I'm depending on you. And when you're sincere in that, and you're no longer depending on yourself, but you're, every morning you get up and say, Lord, I'll do what I can today, but my, what I can isn't going to be good enough. I'm depending on you to do something through me that's bigger than me. You're depending on the Lord, and guess what? In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's not going to get easier to live in Canada as time goes on. It's not going to get easier to do right in this country as time goes on. It's not going to be easier to raise a family. It's not going to be easier to be a witness for Christ. It's going to take something a lot bigger than me. It's going to take Jesus. It's going to take him, and I'm dependent on him. The country may change. The world may change. But at the end of the day, we can be dependent on him. There's a girl in the Old Testament who won a beauty contest. Now, a lot of girls would dream of winning a beauty contest. Her name was Esther. There's a whole book of the Bible named after her, and Esther was put as the queen of Persia at a very specific time. There was a very wicked man named Haman who wanted to commit genocide. He wanted to wipe out all the Jewish people from the kingdom. And honestly, she was thinking, oh, what can I really do? And her uncle, Mordecai, her cousin, sends her a message. And in, we find this message in Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. He says, who knows if you didn't get to the throne, and he uses this phrase, for a time such as this. But if you don't do what you are called upon to do to help save the Jewish people, God will bring deliverance some other way. In other words, Esther, you just happen to be there, and God wants to use you. If you don't let him use you, he can use someone else. It's not about me. It's about God. It's not about me. It's about the Lord, and I can be dependent on him. So what's the message coming out of your life? Is that message Jesus, or do people know you just as the sarcastic, cutting person, or are you known as the complainer, or are you known as the person who's obsessed with this particular political issue? I'm not saying you're not right in some of what you say, but is the single message coming out of your life Jesus? That's what I want for my life. That's what we all should want. But also, who are you depending on? I mean, you have a lot of responsibilities. You have a lot of problems in your lives, as we all do. What are you depending on? Are you depending on yourself or are you depending on him? And notice the one impact in verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, this is a wicked city. It's really not prime 
real estate to start a church. It's not where you would go if you want to have it easy. He gets there, he's shaking, he's in weakness and much trembling. He makes a decision. There's a lot of things wrong with this city, but I'm going to be known for one thing. I'm going to be known for Christ and for Christ crucified. And I can't do it, so I'm going to depend on the only one who can do it, on Jesus. What happened? Their faith then stood in the wisdom of, not in the wisdom of men, sorry, but in the power of God. When you, do what you, when you let God do what you cannot do, God can do some amazing things. A few Sundays ago, we had a family from France visiting our church. They were the relatives of a very uh, solid family in our church. And because they were visiting from France and being with that family, uh, one of the daughters of the family was getting baptized that Sunday. This is just a few weeks ago. And the family from France came to visit just because they felt like they had to, because they were staying there, there's a baptism, we're going to go to church. They did not want to be there. The husband that sat down, I mean, he was an English man. He was French man. I mean, he was like, whoa. I, I, you know, he was so, his body language was so, I'm preaching and I'm trying not to look at him because I, it just was exuding anger right at me. And, you know, I went and introduced myself after the service, and he's just like, he had this smirk on his face like, <laughs> you're a Christian pastor. At that. He didn't say it, but his eyes said it. It was just like, he was despising me like crazy. And then as they got back into the car, they went back to the house after all was said and done. I heard the report later. A whole way home, he's just mocking the message, mocking the church, mocking Christians, mocking everything. They get home, they sit down at lunch, and his 12-year-old boy says to him, Dad, when we get back to France, can we find a church like that and go? He exploded at the kid. Poor kid. I mean, you know, I don't know... I'm glad the kid said it, but poor kid, just poor kid. And I got thinking about that. That child is growing up with no hope. That child is growing up being told that he's a cosmic accident who came from nowhere and is going nowhere. That kid is being told that nothing in the world is right, nothing is wrong, that up is down, that down is up, that right is left, left is right. I mean, the kid is confused. And he showed up with a bunch of kids in a Sunday school class, and he says, these people seem to know where they're going. These people have some assurance. These people have joy. These people are happy. These people have hope. And he says, I want that for me. Now, did we do anything special that Sunday? Not really. Do you know who worked in that kid's heart? The Holy Spirit. If you're just like, I don't know who the Sunday school teacher was that Sunday, but whoever she was, she let the Holy Spirit work through her in that class, and that child went home and is wanting to find a church in their country over there. God does these things. We didn't do it. We didn't like seem, okay, we got this family here, so you're going to go offer him a coffee, and you're going to distract the white. No, we didn't have a plan. God did it. God did something that was bigger than us. Another story here, um, I told some, I think a Thursday night I mentioned that for a while, for about three years, I got to be a prison chaplain in four prisons around Montreal. Well, one guy was in such rough shape. He, was, he used to be a, a hitman for the Hells Angels biker gate, and he had committed murders all across Canada. Well, finally, the RCMP caught up with him in Vancouver. And he got arrested in Vancouver. He gets brought back to Quebec, and he's in this prison. But because of all of his murders, he, was, he had PTSD. Like he was shaking all the time, jumpy all the time. And he went to the prison psychiatrist 
Now, you know it's a bad day when the psychiatrist gives up and says, maybe you should go see a pastor. You know that things are not going well. I'm not joking. This is exactly what happened. So he shows up at the chaplaincy office, and he says, uh, you're a pastor. I said, I think so. My wife tells me I am. So he's just like, okay, well, we need to talk. The psychiatrist sent me here. And I'm like, is this a prank? Like, really? Psychiatrist is just going to give you pills until, I mean, until you sleep. He says, well, none of the pills are working. I said, okay. They've tried everything, and they can't give me anything. Nothing works. He says, I think I need Jesus. I said, I think you do too, actually. Have a seat. So he sat down. I gave him a drink. We talked for an hour. He came back the next day. We talked for an hour. Next week, I was back. He came back. And after the third time, he asked Jesus Christ to be his Savior. Now, I'll be honest, I was skeptical. And I need to tell you another detail. When you're in the prison, you have a pager on your belt with a big, fat red button, okay? And if you ever feel like you're in danger and you press that button, you need to survive for 30 seconds and all the guards will come rushing in, no matter where you are, okay? It's GPS thing. So if you're scared and you think your life is in danger or you're being attacked, you press that, and then you try to you get trained on how to position all the furniture between you and the assailant that they give you through all this training. You got to hang on for 30 seconds, and if you can survive those 30, you will be rescued. So I'm sitting with another inmate in there, and the, the day before, so this other guy had gotten saved, and I have no appointment with the other guy that got saved. This, I'm talking to someone else. The door bursts open. He comes running in, and my finger is going right for that button. He's like, "No, no, no!" I said. He says, I don't know what was in that prayer we prayed the other day, but I've been sleeping like a baby. I said, well, what was in that prayer is called the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And I'm trying not to use like super theological lingo. I said, what happened is if you were sincere when you asked Christ to save you, he came to live in you. Now, all your problems didn't just vanish, but you are now a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Problem, he's had a, had a lot of enemies from his past life, and somebody got transferred into the prison, recognized him, jumped him, and they don't even do an investigation in those cases. In a fight, they just take the two guys, and overnight, they send them to other prisons. So he ended up 14 hours north, and I lost all track of him. All I'm saying is Jesus can change lives. I mean, when he showed up in that office, did I know what to do? All I knew was to have one single message, Jesus. I mean, I could have been Googling PTSD and what to say. Would it have made a difference? Probably not. Psychiatrist, I tried it all. I had one message. Now, could I change his life? No. I didn't even know what to do. I did the only, I'm a one-trick monkey. You know, take the Bible and tell him about Jesus. But that's the most important thing had one message, told him about Christ. The Lord did something in his life that's way beyond my knowledge, way beyond my ability, way beyond my training, way beyond my everything, and he got saved. It's impossible to preach Christ in the power of the Spirit and nothing happen. That doesn't mean everybody will get saved, but it does mean your life will have an impact. It's going to have an impact. Paul gets to Corinth, and a lot of things he could do, a lot of things he could talk about, a lot of sermons to preach on all kinds of different sins. He says, I determined, I made a choice to know one thing, and that's Christ crucified. And I came not with enticing words of man's wisdom. I mean, I couldn't compete with all this rhetoric at Corinth already, but the spirit and power. 
Now, what was happening now? Their faith was standing in the power of God. I have a question for you. What is the loudest message coming out of your life right now? Be honest with yourself. What is the loudest message coming out of your life? Is it political? Is it social? Is it a complaint about this injustice or that issue or that? What is the loudest issue, uh, the loudest message coming out of your life? That loudest message should be Jesus Christ. Whatever your, your hat is that you wear in this life, mother, father, employee, employer, grandfather, whatever the case is, who are you trusting for God's work to get done in that situation? Your own ability? Or do you have the same attitude that you, got, that you had when you got saved? I, 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 I can't. I'm not able. So, Lord, you know I can't. And I'm trusting you to do what only you can do. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, Colossians says, so walk ye in him. With that same faith that you had when you got saved, get up every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every morning, and with that same faith, live life. Just one confidence, not in you, but in him. And if you will live that way, not every problem will go away, not every, li not every person will get saved, but your life is going to have an impact. Nobody wants to live and then die and have had an insignificant life. We all want to matter. Well, how do we matter? We matter by having one message and one confidence, and then we will have an impact. And again, if you're here and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, Jesus wants to change your life. He wants you to be forgiven of all your sins. He wants you to go to heaven. And he's not playing games. There's tons of religions that tell you that he's playing games. Oh, if you can do this long enough, I'll let you in. Oh, if you can get this done, if you could travel to this place, if you can do this. No. He's buzzing you in right now because he paid for all of your sins. And all he wants you to do is to recognize that you're a sinner. He wants you to admit that you can't save yourself. He wants you to confess that he did everything necessary to save you. And he wants you to trust just him, just him, to save you. And when you do, he saves you. Just like that guy I talked about. He comes rushing into your life. Doesn't mean all your problems go away overnight. No, no, no. But he gives you a power to deal with them. He gives you a power to have an effective life. And after all this life is said and done, he takes you to heaven to be with him. Not because he deserved it but because he gave it to you for free. One message, one confidence, and one impact. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you that you didn't put me in a church or a religion where, well, if I was good enough, I get to go to heaven. You came to earth, and you paid for my sin, and you did everything necessary to save me. Thank you for that. Thank you that I'm on my way to heaven, not because I deserve it, but because you gave it to me as a free gift when I put my faith in Christ as my Savior. Thank you also that you cut through all of the noise of life and you cut through all of the different things we can worry about and scream about, and you remind us that really this world and our families and our lives have one hope, and his name is Jesus. Help the message coming out of our life to be Jesus. 
Help the attitude coming out of our life to be like Jesus. Help us to care about what Jesus cares about, to reach out to people like Jesus reaches out to them. Help us to have the message of Christ and Christ crucified coming out of our lives more than anything else as Christians. And help us to realize that even though we are saved, we can't just live by ourselves, but on our own strength. But just as we needed to depend on Christ when we got saved, we have to depend on Christ now to live life. Help us to live not in confidence in our own abilities, but in confidence in you and in your Holy Spirit working through us. And help, thank you for the assurance that our life can count, that our life does count, that our life does matter, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And help us to have that message and that confidence in the Spirit in Christ and help us then to have an impact at work, an impact at home, an impact on our kids and our grandkids and our community. And may we see with our eyes, and then even more so when we get to heaven, see the impact that our life had because of what you did through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.